the judges that aren't in Judges, it's Eli and Samuel. And, and before we jump into the closing narratives of the book of Judges, the ones that paint this distressing picture of what that whole time looked like, uh, we're going to look at these two key and, and somewhat last Judges that aren't listed in that record. And their service overlaps Judges uh, that we've looked at previously. And we may wonder why God doesn't place their early service in that narrative of Judges. But there's a, there's a main reason for it, and that's Eli and Samuel are two Judges that are going to carry us into the monarchy, uh, specifically Samuel. And so the book of Judges has been pointing to this. We've been seeing this movement from a God-run country uh, to a much lesser king-run country. And we're going to watch as Israel keeps taking these steps in rejecting God's direct rule and seeking human rule instead. But as we're going to see as we walk through Eli and Samuel, the nation of Israel is just locked into rampant sin and outright rejection of God and its glory. And so actually the, the need for a king is going to come up, even though that king would have been a rejection of God and what he was doing. And so we begin with the judgeship of Eli. And oftentimes people don't think of Eli uh, as a judge. It, it's, it's in the record, though. If you go to 1 Samuel 4.18, it says of Eli, and he had judged Israel 40 years. And that's that same word that's been used for all the judges uh, that we've covered so far. It's also going to be used of Samuel, who's often called a prophet. Uh, he was a Levite, but then he's also a judge and rules uh, civilly uh, in Israel. Now, when Eli died, uh, he fell backward in his chair after learning that the ark of God had been taken in the battle of Aphek, and he was 98 years old. So if he's reigned or ruled or judged for 40 years, that means he was born in about 1173 BC, mean, meaning he was born at the midpoint of Barak and Deborah's peace. So if you go all the way back in Judges to Barak and Deborah and the battle they fought up in the northern part uh, in the a valley, the plain of Estrelon, they, they created 40 years of peace around there. And in the middle of that time, Eli is born. And so you can see, if you go back all the way into Judges, that he has lived through quite a few other judges. He has seen a lot take place. And actually, his rule, his judging, overlapped a bunch of judges that we've already studied. He died, as I mentioned, after that battle of Aphek in 1075. And that was a battle where Israel had gathered all their forces together. We're at the midpoint of the Philistine oppression, that 20-year mark. And just to put it in perspective, it is after this battle that all of Samson's ministry takes place. And so here we have Samson's already born, Samuel's already born, Eli's coming to that midpoint of Philistine oppression. And what happens is Israel decides that they're going to resist the Philistines themselves. And, the, and Aphek is in the north of Israel. And if you know, the Philistines are the south or southwest. And you see the advance of the Philistines. They come together. They fight the first day. 4,000 Israelites are killed. They think to bring the ark to have a magic token, so to speak. And they, they come in, and the next day they lose 30,000 people. And then when Eli hears about the ark being captured, he dies by falling backward in a chair and breaking his neck. Now, there's a few things about Eli that are unique to him alone. He is the only judge that was a high priest. 
and thus the only high priest that was a judge. Those two go hand in hand. And he started judging at the age of uh, 58, and judging those 40 years, he dies, of course, right at that battle. That means he started judging around 1115 BC, which was three years after the death of Abimelech. And so I hope you can start putting together where he falls, because sometimes we read Scripture and we read Judges, and then we move on to 1 Samuel, and everything seems to move chronologically. But 1 Samuel falls overlapping a significant portion of what we've talked about. By the time we get to his death, his two sons have been involved in priestly work, meaning they're handling the responsibilities of the high priest for at least 10 to 15 years, And that meant they were serving as high priests before Jephthah released them from Ammonite oppression. And so you start seeing this overlap. And you might say, what's what's important about that? Well, it's significant because Eli's sons were horribly wicked men that abused their position. They stole from the offering. They engaged in immorality with the women serving at the tabernacle, which would have been uh, In the future, Jephthah's daughter would have been there, one of the women serving there at the tabernacle. Women committed to celibacy and to the Lord, and they're the ones that were breaking all rules and bonds. They were basically pagan. Actually, Scripture lets us know they were unbelievers. Uh, 1 Samuel 2.12 says of them, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, which means they were worthless human beings. And it says, They knew not the Lord. These were unredeemed, unsaved, unbelievers handling the role of high priest. Uh, Their sin even caused the devout in Israel, the ones that still came to Shiloh to offer sacrifices, which a lot of Israel had quit that process. So these guys were so corrupt that they caused people who were devout to abhor or loathe the sacrifices. Verse 17 of chapter 2 says this, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Their theft and their pollution ruined the worship of the offering, tainted coming to the tabernacle, and it was a sacrifice. A devout Israelite would travel to Shiloh to make their offerings. We're going to see that with Samuel's mom. His family would come and and make those sacrifices, and their theft and pollution destroyed the joy and celebration in the offering. And what it did was left a bitter taste in the mouths of people coming to worship the Lord. His sons, Eli's sons, write the epitaph on his legacy. This is the, the, the point that destroys everything that he's done. But I want us to see some things about his character, though, before we get to the close. Because his sons destroy his legacy. They actually change the whole direction of his family. But that doesn't mean that Eli didn't serve Israel and didn't serve God. It doesn't mean that he wasn't specifically called uh, to do so. Because I want to remind us of something. Eli was high priest and also a judge. That meant he led in public worship for the whole nation. When we bump into Eli, we see his sons. We see his sons corrupt and working as high priests, really in a manner they shouldn't have had by then, because a high priest was high priest until their death. It was something passed down generation to generation. He served in that public worship. It seems like that would be plenty of responsibility for him. But God also called him as a civil leader and a judge for his area. Don't forget how someone becomes a judge. That's not a role you pass on to your kids. It's not something you take upon yourself. It's actually something that God directly called people to do. 
And so when we see Eli, we see the end of his life, and we see this failure with his children. But what we have to not miss is the fact that here is the high priest that God sees serving him in such a way that he calls him to be a judge as well in his area, in his region, because he has a passion for God and his word, and it qualified him to lead as a judge. I want you to note something about Eli and Samuel. Neither of them are military leaders. They are not warriors that go out and fight. They are not Othniel. They are not Samson. They are not Jephthah. They're not Gideon. None of those qualifications of going out and and securing a victory are given to them. These are men that lead for an extended period of time, but their leadership is not military-based. And that indicates something to us. Eli's function as a judge in the civil realm was to focus his battle against the sin, the spiraling sin of the nation, and how he could influence for God in civil matters. So I want to take his two roles into consideration. He is the spiritual head of the nation. He is the high priest. He leads in public worship. But then also, as a judge, he's called to bring God's word and will to bear in the everyday function of life. Eli is a unique character because he erases that line between church and life. Because he's a guy that God called and and, and gave the position of high priest and then specifically called in to judge the nation of Israel and judge in a way where he's going to lead them in living for the Lord in the everyday functions of life. Through your court cases, through agriculture disputes, through whatever may come up, he's leading there. And he would have been a powerful voice to not be as the other nations, nor worship their gods, but instead remain true to Yahweh. Eli's early portion of his life, which the scriptural record doesn't highlight for us. So get to the second point. His main role for God, his fixated on, was what he did with Samuel. But he was someone who led well, who was a bold force in a very worldly nation. He's walked through many oppressions, and that oppression was due to the sin of Israel. And so I have a question for us as we look at Eli, just to kind of capture some of the good there. Would we have been such a bold force in the face of such overwhelming worldliness? Could you be functioning as high priest and God say, I'm going to call you to be a judge as well because I want to take all of who you are, and for my glory, work it. That I want to take you and have you influence the daily function of the Israelites. Now, as I mentioned, the biblical record doesn't go into details about his earlier years as a judge. God's record focuses on the time when he, Eli, would have interacted with Samuel. We see that interaction begin before Samuel is conceived, before he's born. Eli is bumping into Hannah at the tabernacle, which tells us something about Eli. Eli's best and most vital work was as Samuel's virtual father. Many of us know the story of Hannah. We, we use it oftentimes when we have a baby dedication. Uh, Samuel's mother is praying for a son, and then in that process of prayer, she interacts with Eli. God grants her the child that she had prayed for, and she had promised that this child for his whole life would serve God. And so when he is three years old, he's brought to the tabernacle. There, his upbringing would have been under the supervision of Eli, who followed the clear direction of God and effectively raised Samuel. And I'm going to mention this a little bit later. You're in your 70s. 
and some lady wants to drop off her three-year-old. Now, I'm begging people to go to the nursery just for an hour and 15 minutes with three-year-olds, and I can get no one to sign up. He's going to get given a three-year-old that he's now going to raise. And, and what we have to understand about his character is you see no resistance from Eli because he is going to step into the role that he knows God wants him to do. I'm going to give you a little bit about Samuel, though we'll talk about it later. Samuel was that critical, crucial, highlight judge whose leadership led Israel to put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. Forty years of Philistine oppression because they served other gods. Samuel and Othniel balance each other. First judge, last judge. In their dedication for God, their focus, their energy, their perspective, their passion. He's the one who leads in the victory at Mizpah. And I use that word in quotes, lead, because that's a victory that God brings about. Israel gathers for revival. Philistines come because they hear about Israel gathering together to go annihilate Israel. And God, it says in, um, I didn't write down the reference, but 1 Samuel 7 something, but the Lord thundered with great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and disconfitted them, which meant threw them into confusion, and they were smitten before Israel. Samuel's the one that orchestrates the nation coming to Mizpah 20 years after the, the battle of Aphek. Instead of coming to do war, they come for revival, and God uses that to stir up the Philistines, which ends up bringing them to one place where God brings the victory. And so we see how God was going to use Samuel. And the point I'm making about all this is that Eli did what God clearly wanted done and was instrumental in raising up the one God had chosen to lead Israel into revival. And actually the one that leads them into the monarchy. But it's a three-year-old, and he's 70, and he's got these sons that at this point are starting to take over the roles of high priests, which they probably shouldn't have been doing. And then he's dumped with this kid in his lap to raise and train and teach. And it's not like you're just shelling the kid off to school. You would be teaching him. And we see God's plan in place where Samuel's going to be raised at the tabernacle, where he's going to have access to God's word, unique access to God's word that's written. He's going to be taught by the high priest. But we don't want to miss what Eli did. And I wrote down, do we show the same willingness as Eli? Would we take a three-year-old kid at 70 and raise them because God said to? Because that was God's will. Now, he would have had help from the, the women that worked at the tabernacle, but the weight of responsibility fell on him. And as you notice in the story, if you read 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, get all the way through chapter 7, you're going to see Samuel at one point being spoken to by God and running to Eli's room. Why? Because his room was next to Eli's room. He was close. He was in constant contact there. Eli was a judge and the high priest. He had enough things to do, but he didn't shirk from what God had made clear as his work to do, and that was to raise Samuel. And then the question for us as we look at Eli's life is, would we show the same willingness? He even responds with the same submission when God uses Samuel, the same boy he's been raising, and, and Samuel's probably 10 or 12, when he brings the second and final affirming warning to Eli 
that due to Eli's sons and Eli's refusal to correctly and effectively end their behavior, that Eli's family would no longer be the high priest. When he hears that from Samuel, he says this, it is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. And I want us to to recognize something as we're about to go into Eli's colossal failure, but recognize something about his character as high priest, as judge. Here is a man that did what God wanted done. And even when the news was horrifically disappointing, when it highlighted his failure, which we're going to talk about, he still was able to say to a little boy, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli could not be faulted at all for his commitment to God and his will. Uh, Don't take that away from Eli. Uh, We don't find him arguing against that as his life was dedicated to fulfilling that. Yet, as I mentioned over and over, Eli's sons were wicked and they were allowed to practice that wickedness. And so we see that where Eli's most vital work was Samuel, Eli's failure was his sons who perverted the ministry. We've seen this already, that the sons knew not the Lord. They stole from the offerings. That means they took, uh, God had orchestrated in the offering. If you work through the book of Leviticus, when, when Israelites would come make an offering, a portion of that offering was set aside for the priests. But it was at a certain point in time. So they would burn the fat off and they might get the shoulder. They uh, would burn a portion of it and they would get the breast from the animal. Well, these guys started taking meat before it was offered. Uh, They would want the choice fat meat. They would stick their fork in and so uh, into the meat and pull it out. And so they were stealing from God uh, during that time. And then it, it goes even further that they were engaging in immorality with the women dedicated to the Lord, which would be as pagan as you could get. Uh, the pagan deities, that's what they did. Uh, if you go to Leviticus, when it mentions holy girls from a pagan standpoint set aside, it was women that would have been used in this way as an act of worship. And so these unsaved men who have snuck into the ministry, and Eli should have done something about it, have now turned the worship of the one true God into a pagan practice, their own playground, so to speak. And what we see is that Eli failed in raising his sons. They were lost, and they acted upon the sin that he spent his whole life addressing. This is the sad reality of failing as a parent, because his sons destroyed everything that he did for the Lord. They were the opposite of what he had done. But I want to say something about their unbelief, Their unbelief in God ultimately was their responsibility. God actually doesn't address Eli about the fact that they don't know the Lord. He addresses Eli, though, because he failed, and he was warned about this and he was punished for it. He failed in removing his sons. Eli was the high priest until his death. That's how God had made it. He never should have relinquished the responsibility to them. He always was supposed to be able to step in and take someone out. And he could have and should have removed his sons from office and service. He should have made sure they had no benefit from being in the priestly line. They probably never should have started, given they didn't know the Lord, but maybe that was not clear early on. But Eli's error, his sin, his failure ultimately came in the fact that as the high priest, he allowed his sons to 
engage in the worship of the Lord in wickedness and not remove them. He's warned by a man of God about his lack of action regarding his sons. God made it clear that by doing nothing or very little and clearly not enough, that he had spurned the gift of the priesthood and placed his family and himself ahead of God. It's a tragic rebuke. 1 Samuel 2.29, this is a man of God, never named, just comes in and gives Eli this warning. He says in the middle, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation. Why are you, why are you just treating casual what I as God have called my people to do and given you the opportunity to orchestrate and be a part of? And he says something why do you do that and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people? And there is his great sin. He put his family, his, his life, his legacy, his relationships above God. He honored the sin instead of removing the sin The end result for Eli was that his lineage would no longer be the high priest. It gets switched in the reign of Solomon, and they are no longer the ones. Now, everyone is descended from Aaron, but it's a different son that they pull the lineage from, and he loses the priesthood. It says in there that his descendants would be begging the new high priest for just an option, a position, so they could get fed. It's a fulfillment, like I said, that takes place during Solomon's reign. It said that he would lose both his sons in one day. And then there's a beautiful promise in there that there'll be a faithful priest that will execute perfectly what God desires, which we see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's no priest that we find throughout the history of Israel that fulfills that prophecy except Christ. So despite Eli's focus on God, he prioritized God's work and his presence He even dies when he hears the news that the ark of God is taken. Scripture makes that clear. He hears that his sons are dead, still sitting normal in the chair, and then he finds out that the ark of God is taken. It says when he hears that, he falls over backward at the gate and breaks his neck. In other words, this man, till the end of his life, put God first, except with his sons in this weird situation. He makes an odd choice to stick with his sons in the face of their gross and obvious sin. And Eli does something that Samson kind of spent a lifetime doing. He makes the convenient choice. What's convenient? Don't remove your sons. They're supposed to be high priests. They're supposed to do this. This is their job. They've been raised for this. Who else is going to take this over, right? Who's going to do this? If not them, who? And so he leaves them there. I put a couple things. Maybe he liked the better cuts of meat. Maybe he wanted to pamper or condone the behavior of his sons or maintain the relationship. Maybe he didn't want family turmoil. Maybe he didn't want the weight of responsibility after he's 70 some years of old. No matter what it was, Eli went with self and convenience instead of God. He chose himself over God at a critical juncture, even though his whole life was dedicated in service and sacrifice to God. And he he paints an interesting picture, does he not? Because there's so many people out there that say they're going to stick with God's word, they're going to do things God's way, and then when somebody close enough to them breaks God's law, they decide to bend their principles. Suddenly, 
we can bend on what I've committed my whole life to because the people breaking the rules are just that close, just close enough where I'll bend the rules for them. And he's a challenge to us all because I want you to realize something. All of his formal work to combat the sin of Israel. Can you imagine if you've heard Eli teaching, preaching, pushing no sin, and then you come to offer a sacrifice and you hear the stories about his sons stealing the offering and engaging in immorality with people who had dedicated their life to God. And he is erasing what's there. There's no doubt it's a temptation. I recognize as people who are close to us fall into sin, but are we going to take the right and harder step of confronting them? Do you realize something that his two sons died unredeemed? That means they're in hell right now. And what did Eli bypass? An opportunity to confront their sin. He chose temporal convenience over eternal reward. And he chose that in a weird way for his sons. He didn't do everything he could have done. As Ezekiel would have said, he didn't stand on the gap there at all. Why? Because in this one instance, he chose convenience over God. And my question to all of us as we look at this is, will we heed the warning of Eli's finish? Will we see that warning, or have we already begun to make his fatal mistake? And if we have, let's make sure we evaluate the situation in light of God's Word and what He wants, and recognize this. You can cloak and cover sin, and all you've done is given someone, what, 80 years of peace to face an eternity of torment? That's a selfish decision, isn't it? And it's selfish beyond belief for Eli. Instead of confronting them, he let it go. Now, we come to this midpoint. Fast forward again. We've covered his life. Now we're sitting at the midpoint of Philistine oppression, and they've gathered their troops, Israel, in the north at the town of Aphek, and they go to do battle. Like I said, the first day they get beaten, and they get 4,000 Israelites are killed. They decide to bring the ark of God like a magic token to the battlefield. Here comes the ark of God. This represents the presence of God in Israel. And what are they doing with the presence of God in Israel? And I want to see something. It's the genie in a Bible idea, right? How do we use God? We go to God and we say, what promise is there for me that I can take that God will make my life good? I need this, God. Give me that promise. What a trite way to approach the Almighty. And that's what Israel was doing. Let's just drag the ark out here. Let's rubbed it, and see if the genie comes out and gives us a victory. The Philistines are worried. They're pagan people. They hear that their God has come into the camp. And I want you to see what happens. They, they have to beat themselves up. They're worried, and they tell the Philistines. This is, they give their chant in Samuel. Don't, don't be weak today, Philistines. Otherwise, you're going to be ruled by Israel. And they come in, they swoop in, they kill 30,000 Israelites, and they capture the ark. I'm not going to get into it, but the Philistines hate the fact that they capture the ark in the end because God wreaks havoc among them for what they do with the ark. But in this moment, they capture the ark. And then the news of that, they capture ark Hophni and Phinehas. Eli's two sons are killed together on the same day. The news of the ark reaches Eli in Shiloh, 25 miles away. And when he hears that, like I mentioned, he falls backward in a chair and breaks his neck. And I want us to realize the mantle of leadership falls abruptly to a young Levite 
about 25 years of age, who's been raised by Eli, just as the Philistines are advancing now on Shiloh. They know that the tabernacles at Shiloh, they just grab the presence of God from the army and they come in to take Shiloh. And so begins the very specific work of Samuel. And I want us to understand 25 years of age and suddenly you are the leader in Israel. God's chosen servant who, as 1 Samuel 7.15 says, judged Israel all the days of his life. And that service, of course, begins in a rush. Historical data tells us, obviously the scriptural record, we don't see the advance of the Philistines, but historical data lets us know that the Philistines came to Shiloh, 25 miles a day, and annihilated Shiloh. The archaeological digging from that time shows that it was completely razzed to the ground. Why in the world are they coming to Shiloh, 25 miles away? That's where the tabernacle is. Here's what's fascinating. They don't get the tabernacle. It pops up in the story again. We see it in Nod. We see it in a couple different locations. And there's only one point of reference that we have. Why in the world was the tabernacle dismantled and moved at that moment? Well, the reality is Samuel must have acted quickly in getting the tabernacle removed from danger and protecting it from the approaching enemy. And it's a story we kind of see through the fact that Shiloh is destroyed and there's only one leader left in Shiloh and we see that he acted with speed and wisdom. Now, you might wonder how in the world did he suddenly grab the reins? Uh, It makes sense that people would turn to Samuel. God had already put a stamp of approval on him. You go back in Samuel's life, 1 Samuel 3, 19 through 21, which is what we read at the beginning. Who was Samuel to the nation of Israel at this time? And it says this, And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, when Samuel gave a prophecy, it always came true, which was what a prophet was supposed to have. But just as an implication, there was obviously prophets that had their words fall to the ground. Nothing Samuel said ever didn't come to fruition. And it says, in all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and that statement means from the top all the way to the bottom, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. He was the heir apparent. He was known to be the next judge. And in all reality, he was set up to cover the whole nation of Israel. And this is Dan. Dan is in the south, but Dan also ends up establishing itself high up in the north, uh, which we'll see uh, in the next coming stories. But they're all the way through. So all of Israel, in a unique way, understood that Samuel was God's choice, God's chosen servant, one who brings us into the monarchy. He's set aside from birth to serve the Lord, which I think should sound familiar as we compare it to Samson, a contemporary of Samson, and the human instrument to bring Israel out of apostasy during its longest oppression of this period. The Philistines oppressed Israel for the longest period of time during the Judges. He's born no earlier than 1100 BC. He's making him, again, the same age as Samson. Both of these guys uh, come into power at the same time. Samson is doing what God called him to do, which is to distract the Philistines from 1075 to 1050. And Samson or Samuel is called to bring revival to the nation of Israel. 
Samson, as we know, is called to distract the Philistines, but he becomes distracted by the world. And we looked at his tragic story, but we know God works all things to good. And he worked it out that Samson did what he called him to do. Samuel does not get distracted. Samuel stays at this preaching in Israel. And I want us to understand that this was no easy task. 20 years of preaching to Israel before we find revival taking place and then the battle and the oppression of the Philistines defeated. He's used by God uh, to anoint Saul king in 1050 BC. He gets to anoint David king for the future in 1025 BC and likely dies around 1020 BC, about 80 years of age. He's not perfect, and we're going to see that at the end of his life, but he was God's very unique committed servant in the time of heavy apostasy used by God to turn the nation back to him and lead in breaking the Philistine oppression of 40 years. And so I want to look briefly at his life to see some things about him that maybe will help us understand uh, what maybe we can copy in his life to emulate, to bring about change in our society. First, Samuel was set apart to God. Hannah states in 1 Samuel 1.28, Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And if you look at his life, he remains set apart and no doubt would have had pressure otherwise. Right away, when we read the Old Testament stories, we often say, well, it's easier for them to be set apart. They don't have the same temptations. They don't have the same opportunities. They don't live in the same world, the same pressures that I have. We tend to do that, right? We try to make ourselves unique so that we can remove ourselves from the principle that's there. Pressure. You're set up as the heir apparent of a nation by God. Is there not a temptation to manipulate your role and get gain from that role? You know there's temptation. His two sons fail just like Eli's sons fail. They take bribes and they use it for their own advantage. Then think about Eli's sons. He's growing up. He's 25 when they die. They've been doing their wicked sin all his life. And of course, they're going to try to corrupt this young Levite who sits in their father's home. Of course, they're going to want him to dive into what they're doing, especially as he's elevated in Israel, as he becomes the heir apparent. It's it's obvious that God has his hand on his life. Well, they're going to come in and say, why not engage in this? This is okay. There's the Eli's son. There's Israel in general. What is around him? Utter, complete wickedness. It looks like us. That's the main point we're going to make in the next two weeks, but it'll be two weeks later towards the end of October. As we finish up Judges, we're going to recognize that what Israel looked like, we see around the world today. Distressing days where humankind has just engaged in apostasy from a religious standpoint, from a moral standpoint. And so he's confronting that same society yet he remains set apart to God. And I wonder if our lives resemble Samuel's in any way, shape, or form. Before we suddenly tuck him off in a corner and say, ah, he's Samuel, we can't do anything like him. Actually, we can do everything like he did. We can be set apart to God. We can be unique for him. And that commitment to God and his purpose and his glory allowed Samuel to set aside the apostasy of a nation. He's the one who leads He's the one that brings revival to a nation. He is this instrument, this voice that God brings to this whole nation for them to leave 
what they were doing and put away their false gods. As I, I read once, 1 Samuel 7, 4, Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam, Ashtaroth, and served the Lord only. Instead of gathering at a, at a town to go fight the Philistines on their own power, they're gathered in Mizpah for a revival. They're coming together to commit to God. That's what their point is. When we see the Philistines converge on Mizpah, they're there to worship. They're there fasting before the Lord. And then they hear that the Philistines are coming and they go to Samuel and say, we're going to get annihilated again. Pray for us. Make an offering for us. He does. And what does the Lord do? It's then that the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and disconfitted them, distressed them, confused them. And we're thinking, oh, they got a little confused or dizzy. No, when, when you see that God thunders and then it says that he confused or disconfitted them, you got to think of the Egyptians and what he did to them in the Red Sea. You think how he sent hail at some time with Joshua. This is God doing battle for them. You're sitting at a revival. You haven't brought all your weapons of war with you. There's some there, of course. You're vulnerable. You're not planning on this. And God uses that moment to utterly destroy the Philistines. He brings a miraculous victory, and then Israel gets to go out and participate in it, and it smote them, it says, until they came under Bethkar. And then Samuel does something unique. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. He's led in a revival. God who has confirmed him as his spokesperson. He's made every word he said come true. And then God comes and literally annihilates the Philistines, giving a major victory. And what does Samuel do? And I want us to see this. He gets a rock and he sets it up and makes sure that Israel doesn't forget that it was the Lord that helped them. His response to victory, to the end of 40 years of fear and oppression, was to bring glory to God to emphasize God's hand and orchestration. He didn't sit back and say, I told you, which he had told him, I told you, get right with the Lord and everything will come true. He didn't elevate self. He didn't turn about him. He didn't didn't point to Israel. He didn't talk about everything they had done. Instead, he said, look what God's done. In victory, he emphasized the Lord. And I put a question here. Do we respond the same in our victories? Do we respond at all in victory with the next thing you do is make sure you don't forget that God helped you? I put, do we even notice his sovereign providential hand in our lives? I think so many of us as we're engaging life and we're thinking about what comes at us, we miss that his hand is upon our life, that he's involved in our life. Surely when we have a victory, we want to claim the glory It was because of what we did, how smart we are, how dedicated we are, how gifted we are. All these things are what we throw up uh, to gain credit. Then when we're in desperation, we'll pray to God. If he brings the victory, we'll make sure we get the glory. And I want to see a complete opposite response from Samuel. Victory happens. Let's not forget that it was God's hand that did it. But as I mentioned, he doesn't do everything well. Too often is the case he couldn't help building his own succession plan. I'll remind you of something. God called the judges directly. Gideon was offered kingship, and Gideon blows it in life as well, but Gideon turned down the idea of a succession plan, 
Abimelech comes in and he's the, the half illegitimate son of Gideon and he comes in to be king and it's utter disaster. We watch certain judges setting up their sons and grandsons, none of which was God's model. God called judges directly. What does Samuel do? Well, he follows the pattern of too many before him. And so we find that as he becomes older, that Samuel set up his kids as judges, which is his error and is his stumble and is indicative of somebody who's lost a little sight of who they are. First Samuel 8, 1 through 5 says this, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba, further south than where he worked. So he's thinking, let's cover more people, let's make this work. But he's thinking, what can I do and my family do? And it says in three, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now Samuel's life is an amazing picture of how God uh, chose someone, used that person, accomplished what was there. But still at the end of his life, what do we see? We see him making the same mistakes Eli did in the upbringing of his children. Both sets of their sons did not follow in their father's passion for the Lord. We see something else in him, though. Because I look at the character of the sons and we know that they're responsible for their decisions. And it doesn't say that the sons don't know the Lord. I want to be careful to make a distinction. The sons took the temptation to make some extra money about judging. So they went down to rule on a case and they perverted judgment, which meant they took the bribe. They judged non-faithfully. There's no indication of that in Samuel's life. But what we see in Samuel, and this is an error that he falls into, it's a sin, is that he, he made his sons judges, and that was not his job. There was only one person who called people to be judges, and that was God. And so he took the place of God. You think, why be so strict here? Why such a stern emphasis here? And everyone I know tends to bypass these five verses and just ignore it. God does reassure Samuel and say, look, your sons aren't the reason. It's not you they're rejecting, they're rejecting me. In other words, Samuel threw a little bit of a pity party and God said, well, don't because they're, they're rejecting me. But you can't lose sight of the fact that his sons were a reason, a catalyst, a, a, a point of contention that came up. But what we watch him do is step into the role of God that he shouldn't have done. You think, ah, it's just a small matter. And I'll remind you of Moses who hits a rock and God doesn't let him enter the promised land. Uh, to, much, to whom much has been given, much is expected. And so God is clear on what he wants done. It's a catalyst now for a king request. Not the ultimate reason, by all means, but still in the biblical record for a reason. So what do we gain? Because this is a broad view of two guys that we could have spent a couple weeks studying. What do we learn from these last judges? I want us to see some things about Israel, which we're going to get into as we close out the book of Judges. We see Israel racing to be like the world. They want a king like the rest, even if it means setting aside the one who had rescued them. Over and over. And understand, this request for a king comes at a point 
after God literally thundered and destroyed the oppression of 40 years. Yes, they're rejecting God when it comes to asking for a king. We see Israel repeating and entrenched in the religion of their world. They're constantly magnetized to what sinful society is doing. That's something we see repeated in the church today. It seems like it's drawn. Whatever the world is doing, we're, we're pulled in every direction that the world wants to go. The world demands that, and we just seem to be sucked right to it. So is Israel. We see God sending the right judges to confront them, men committed to God's purpose and instruction, who labor diligently to see his kingdom advanced. Eli and Samuel were both very committed men of God. Eli is a unique high priest judge. Samuel is a prophet and a judge who speaks God's word, who's preaching revival, who God uses to bring two kings in. But they're still men and they're still flawed. And they fail to raise godly sons One of the sets of sons horrifically pollutes worship and engages in immorality. Men who are unsaved yet still in the role as high priest. And Eli should have removed them, but he placed his family legacy and right above God's. He chose the convenient step. And what do his sons do? They show religious apostasy. They destroy the function of faith in their world, which is actually one of the things we're going to see at the end of Judges, pictured in one of the stories, how religion is polluted. And then the other set of sons misuse the position of civil leadership that should never have been theirs to begin with. Samson failed to instill in them the integrity needed to judge God's people, and he also overstepped his own authority in placing them in power. He should have raised them better, and they should have never been in that role. Even if they would have judged correctly, they were in a place they shouldn't have been in because God calls the judges. He chose his own way, his sons, instead of trusting God to raise up his own leaders. So here's the thing. Can we emulate these two men in our passion for God's worship and truth? Emulate them in our passion to serve the one true God and to keep his purpose central? To walk into a world that is wicked and horrific and horrible and doesn't want anything to do with the one true God and preach his truth and to be diligent for 20 years for a lifetime of preaching? And then can we avoid the trap of self-indulgence in temporal purposes that elevate us and our own instead of remaining fixed on God's purpose and his way? Eli didn't confront his sons and missed opportunity to stand in the gap in their life eternally. He did them no good by allowing them to engage in sin. He spurned God and spurned opportunity. And then I have a a, a kind of a side note that comes from both these men. Can we avoid the trap of neglecting the gift and responsibility of children to make sure in all the work done for the Lord that we do not neglect to bring up those entrusted by God specifically to our care. Scripture is full of a call to parents, and I'm going to throw this out to grandparents, that we're to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Eli and Samuel show us something about failing as a parent, of not taking that trust, that moment, 
of time that we have. And I know uh, if you're sitting here and some, somebody starts off with kids and they're crying and waking you up at night, you think this is never going to end. This is going to last a lifetime. But then when your kids turn in 17, 18, you think, wow, that went quickly. And if you're a grandparent, you're watching your kids out of the house, having kids of their own, and you start seeing how quickly that opportunity can slip away from you. And Eli and Samuel tell us, don't miss God's responsibility to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Kind of as a final question, will we follow Eli and Samuel in their godly commitment and lifelong passion, yet avoid their closing stumbles? Be committed to God and His way. Be willing to have the difficult conversation, to confront sin when it's there, to not gloss over and condone it. Be passionate, but avoid that closing stumble. Don't lose sight of those God has entrusted close to your care, their spiritual well-being, your example in their spiritual walk. Look back over life and say, huh, was I an example to my kid of what I'm supposed to do? Did I prioritize God? Is that what they saw in my life? Did they see this? Were they included in this? Were they brought into this? And then I know sometimes we sit here and we look at the pain and loss. Opportunity may has passed us by. And I want to encourage you with this. It has not. If you're alive and they're alive, you have not lost your opportunity. Dive in, engage, do whatever it takes to be the light in their life because God has given you a unique opportunity, a specific opportunity, and never let that go no matter when. God warned Eli when he was in his 70s to confront his children, to deal with it. And he bypassed that opportunity that God gave him. He had time given to him and he, and he walked away from it. Let's not walk away from the time God gives us. Let's be focused on what God has called us uh, to do. Let's-